Welcome to this week's edition of Honestly Speaking with Tara Setmayer, where telling the truth in a time of universal deceit is a revolutionary act. This week's episode of the podcast is brought to you by OnDutyUSA.com. OnDutyUSA is a veteran-owned, veteran-farmed, and veteran-operated health and wellness company. If you have trouble with anxiety and Who doesn't in these final weeks of this crazy election? Insomnia, aches, or pains, On Duty's Kentucky-grown products are all you need. On Duty offers a line of premium CBD products from traditional sublingual oils, gummy bears, beeswax, topicals, and more. Be sure to shop and save 15% on your order when you visit ondutyusa.com and sign up for their monthly subscription at checkout. You can also subscribe to the On Duty Monthly Report, where they share the latest in veterans news and offer exclusive insider discounts. Now, for my listeners, On Duty is offering a one-time 20% off discount on your first order. Simply type Tara in the promo box. That's Tara in the promo box for 20% off your first order at OnDutyUSA.com. Let me just say that I don't allow advertisers on my podcast unless I endorse the product. And both my husband and I are regular users of their CBD products. My husband uses it for back pain. I use it for my knee pain. And it is amazing. The results have been amazing. So be sure to check out OnDutyUSA.com and support the veteran-owned business because I support them. And I know that you as my listeners want to support small businesses, support our veterans, and it's a CBD product that works. It certainly works for my husband and I. So I hope you check them out. So we are 40 something odd days away at this point from election day. I just can't even believe that we're this close to this election. It's remarkable. I I can't even believe it. But we are in the home stretch, my friends. Um, In some places, voting has already started. A lot of places have early voting. Uh, Florida, North Carolina, uh, my my state where I live now in Virginia starts um, next week, I think, um, where you can start requesting your ballots. Pay attention, folks. Go to vote.org and find out if you're registered. Find out where you um, can vote early and what those dates are. Please, please, please educate yourself on where and how to vote. It is so important because things are out of control. Shit is about to get really, really real. We thought it was real before, but it's really going to get real now. The president of the United States is acting more insane and more nefarious and more underhanded than ever before. And on this episode, I have a guest who has come forward after spending two and a half years at the highest levels of the Department of Homeland Security to tell the American people what he witnessed while he was there. The amount of illegal, batshit crazy things that Donald Trump asked our national security and law enforcement folks to do is astonishing. It's Miles Taylor. Um, Some of you may be familiar with him. He came out a couple weeks ago uh, publicly about his time as the chief of staff at the Department of Homeland Security. And some of the stories that he has told are really hard to believe. It's just hard to, it's hard to fathom the president of the United States would behave this way. 
So he is my guest. Stay tuned for him. He tells some stories. You're just, your mind is going to be blown. Your head is going to explode. And if you're not motivated to get out there and vote and bring five other people with you, you will be after this interview. It is just, just wait and listen to the stories that he tells. It's um, unreal. So stay tuned for Miles Taylor, former chief of staff from the Department of Homeland Security, who has now gone public with his stories and describing the absolute illegal and insane behavior of the president of the United States um, for the two and a half years that he was at the Department of Homeland Security and why Donald Trump is such a uh, absolute threat to our democracy. Um, before we get to Miles, a couple things to go through, um, some updates. So everyone knows I am a senior advisor for the Lincoln Project, and we have been kicking ass and taking names. Um, no sleep till Biden is one of our mottos within the group. So um, one of the things that we have done to expand our reach besides the podcast and all the ads that come out is start something called LPTV. Lincoln Project TV. And it streams live on the Lincoln Project YouTube channel. If you haven't subscribed, go there and subscribe. And myself and the Rick Wilson are the co-hosts of a new show called The Breakdown. And we are live on Monday, Wednesday, and Thursdays from 9 to 10. And uh, you can watch us on Facebook Live, on the YouTube channel. You can watch it. If you can't catch us live, you can watch the replay. And we are incorporating audience engagement. So if you if you send um, a question with the hashtag Ask the Breakdown, we'll take a look and pick out some viewer questions. We're also going to, we're trying to figure out whether we're going to be able to take calls live or not, which <laughs> it's still all kind of an experiment. We're working it out but taking calls would be amazing. So, um, but check us out. It's called The Breakdown. We're on Monday, Wednesday, and Thursdays, nine to 10 live. And we'll also be doing uh, debate coverage on those days. And the beauty of having a live stream show on YouTube is that we can decide to add episodes if we want outside of that regular schedule news breaking news contingent. So, but that's the schedule for now. So check us out the breakdown with me and the Rick Wilson on LPTV and some other news. Some of you may have remembered that a few months ago, I mentioned that I was part of a documentary called dismantling democracy. I was the narrator for it. The first time I had ever done anything like that. And it was so cool. Well, the documentary is out and it aired its first um, showing on PBS in the Richmond UVA Charlottesville area. And um, it will go national on, I think, 80% of the PBS stations across the country starting in October. But you can check out the first two episodes online if you don't want to wait over at vpm.org slash dismantling dash democracy. That's Virginia Public Media. They helped produce the project. And it was really a lot of fun. And it's an intense series. It's a three-part series. Each episode is an hour. And um, I was just thrilled to be a part of it. So you can check that out. It's called Dismantling Democracy. And you can watch it over at vpm.org slash dismantling dash democracy, or just Google it or wait till it comes to your local PBS station. So um, I hope people get a chance to check that out. So you notice I said only 80%, not 100% of the PBS stations were going to air this. 
Well, I heard from the grape through the grapevine that a couple of the PBS stations thought it was too triggering before the election. That's how intense the discussion over the dismantling of democracy is in this documentary. And I was like, wow, really? (laughs) But that's okay. We'll take 80%. Um, So I'm very proud of that. Also, a couple new um, anti-Trump groups have emerged, and I'm happy to say that I have become a part of them. Um, If you are a regular listener of this podcast, you know that Greg Keeley, Lieutenant Commander Greg Keeley, was on the show a couple weeks ago, and he started a group called CAMSEC, the Council on American Security. And he asked me to be a senior advisor on that. And I said, yes. And also Miles Taylor's group, um, which the announcement went out um, today. Uh, It's called Repair. And it is a bunch of Republican, um, either former Trump admin officials, uh, elected officials, and conservatives who are just over Donald Trump and looking forward to how the hell we're going to repair this mess that he's created. And um, so I am also a part of their advisory board as well. So I've been a busy beaver fighting for democracy. And I appreciate all of you who continue to listen and support all the efforts of all the groups and everything that we're doing. All right. So what else? Let's talk a little bit about Donald Trump's most recent um, behaviors and things that he's done that has just been, um, uh, he's just getting worse, you know, I, I, because you see this is desperation. I mean, the Biden campaign, in my opinion, is still not assertive enough. They are not going enough on offense. They're playing it safe. You know, it's football season now. Um, go Giants. It's football season now. And I always use this this analogy. Prevent defense doesn't prevent anything but a victory. That seems to be what the, the, the Biden campaign is doing. They're playing prevent defense. And you just can't do that when you have someone that is as rogue and reckless as Donald Trump is. You just can't. De- playing defense all the time. It's not going to work. Yes, Biden is still up in some of the polls here and there nationally, but national polls don't matter. He is leading in some of the swing states, which is good. But that lead has been cut into a little bit. Yeah, of course, because Donald Trump now is out here running around at rallies. He doesn't give a damn about COVID. He doesn't care about the health risks. He doesn't give a damn about you, me, or anybody else except for his own campaign. And he's willing to do anything, anything to win. That is a dangerous combination when Joe Biden is trying to play by the rules and trying to do the responsible thing by doing virtual campaign events and continuing to wear masks and being the responsible adult, basically. Well, that's great. He can continue to be a responsible adult, but they've got to go. They have to be more aggressive. They just do. But that's just coming from me. Thank God for the Lincoln Project and others for kind of making up that gap a little. But geez, come on, guys, what are you doing now? I do feel confident about the uh, Joe Biden's performances in public lately. He's been doing much better. Um, there's a town hall with CNN. It uh, has not aired yet as of the recording of this podcast. But Donald Trump, <clears throat> Donald Trump did a, did a town hall with ABC this week. And it was a disaster. But what was really revealing about that was how he interacted with regular voters who were not his cult members. 
And it was, um, you know, it was interesting. And he got some pushback from a couple of folks, which was good to see. I mean, they fact-checked him faster than and more aggressively than a lot of reporters have done, um, which was nice to see. But it really was a prelude to what the debates are going to look like. So I hope the Biden campaign was studying that and looking, because Donald Trump is very transparent. He doesn't really give you much uh, of a surprise with things. We pretty much know he has no floor, that he has no bottom. He's willing to say or do anything. But we know the tactics. He doesn't really change much from them. So I hope that they learn from that. Um, George Stephanopoulos did a good job of trying to fact check Trump on some, some things, but he still could have been more aggressive with it. But I guess he didn't want to get into too much of a back and forth because it was supposed to be a town hall about the voters in Pennsylvania. So, which is a crucial swing state, by the way, goes to show you how important it is because Joe Biden's town hall is also going to be in Pennsylvania, (laughs) hugely important state. Um, But yeah, he, he's, he's re reinstituting these, these COVID pressers again, which my friend Tom Nichols thinks is a wonderful thing. He's like the more the merrier because every time Trump does these long form unvarnished um, media events, he just makes himself look more and more incompetent and says crazier and insane things when he does this. So and he has. He's continued to do that. So this week we found out that he he's blaming blue states. He has separated America into red and blue states when it comes to the COVID response. Not a surprise. And he's blaming blue states for the death toll. Well, if we if all the blue states with those terrible Democratic governors had done the right thing, then we wouldn't have this type of death toll. <laughs> okay. It's he is just such a despicable person that um, he doesn't care about the deaths of 200,000 Americans. He doesn't care. He just doesn't give a damn. And the more he talks about this stuff, the more you see that. And I guess the American people have to decide. Do they want someone that, that is that much of a sociopath that has that much of a disregard for life? Well, then that's who you vote for. I frankly find that to be incredibly dangerous and further evidence of the coarsening of our society that Donald Trump has advanced. I just don't think that that's ever a good thing for just societal (laughs) reasons. So he just continues to show us who he is, which is a horrible, despicable person that doesn't care about life. And in my interview with Miles Taylor, you're going to hear more examples of that, even more stark examples that are consistent. Um, it's, you're just going to be like, this guy is president. I just wait. The Bob Woodward book, um, the excerpts and everything have come out since then. I did buy the book. I have not opened it yet because I've just begun reading two other books, Michael Cohen's book, Disloyal and John Dean's book, Authoritarian Nightmare. Um, but I do have rage and I will probably start to read it this weekend. Um, yeah, you know, just a little little light reading. <laughs> um, but I, you know, we have to, I have to be familiar with everything that's going on because I just, I'm fascinated with the insight that everyone has who's had firsthand knowledge and, and the information that's come out of the Woodward tapes. Oh my God. We know now that, that Donald Trump knew about how lethal the coronavirus was back in freaking January. January and February when he was playing it down publicly. 
that under any other administration would be impeachable in and of itself. He basically allowed tens of thousands of Americans to die, which could have been preventable, probably preventable deaths. If he had just been honest with the American people about how serious it was, how it was transmitted through the air, how easily, um, I mean, how deadly it was. And if everyone wore a mask in the beginning, we could have cut that down considerably. If you would have just led by example, instead of all the other stuff that he did, having rallies, lying about it, making fun of masks, refusing to wear one, pushing therapeutics that were conspiracy theories. Just think of all that time we lost as a country and look where we are now. Look where we are now. It's, um, it's just so frustrating. It really is. You know, there are certain things that the federal government is uniquely positioned to handle, One of those things is mass production and distribution of things, scaling things up. You know, if the Defense Production Act had been instituted immediately, as soon as Trump knew, we wouldn't be where we are right now because there would have been enough PPE. There would have been enough testing. You know, this whole idea that we failed miserably in the testing area, testing and contact tracing. These were things that people who study this stuff, the the experts, they were asking, calling, begging for this, but Trump was resistant. And all because he thought, well, you know, we don't want people to panic. Bullshit. He doesn't, he didn't want people to panic. That was his, his excuse for not being honest with the American people about this deadly pandemic. Oh, but he wants people to panic when it comes to his law and order. Antifa's coming. The black and brown people are coming to your neighborhood. You know, let's panic about that, but not about something that was preventable, a real disease, a real disease where just simple, very simple steps could have saved lives. It's despicable. It is unimaginable, but Donald Trump did it and he needs to pay a price for it, which is voting him out. And we found out also that uh, Michael Caputo, who was a Trump lackey, he was on the campaign. He's buddies with Roger Stone. They have both have the shady Russian dealings. They've had um, all kinds of questionable things. He lied during the Mueller campaign. He's a Trump lackey and he's a conspiracy theorist on top of it. And he's a bit mentally unstable. He had, he was installed as the Department of Health and Human Services press person back in the spring. He has no background in health, no back, no medical background. He is someone who was put there so that he could politically manipulate what was going on with the coronavirus response. We all know that the CDC and the FDA, unfortunately, have been overly politicized. Dr. Redfield, who's the head of the CDC, made a mockery of himself back in March when Trump first went to the CDC, when we first, this whole thing started to ramp up with COVID and the um, discussion about anyone wants a test can get a test and da, da, da. That wasn't true. And Dr. Redfield stood there with this goofy freaking look on his face, didn't say anything. And the other doctors there didn't, and the health and human services secretary, Azar, they, none of the, none of them said anything. And they just let Trump get away with bullshitting the American people. And we knew right then, I knew the CDC was being politicized at that point. The Center for Disease Control and the FDA, the NIH, these are world renowned, world respected public health agencies. They're the best in the world. They have the best scientists and doctors in the world. And 
Now their credibility was being called into question because of their politically appointed directors who were allowing who were allowing Trump to manipulate them because he had a different narrative. Now, when it comes to the vaccine developments and things like that, the American people don't have confidence in them, not like they used to. And that is so dangerous. Another, let's check off another institution where Donald Trump has has um, destroyed public confidence because of how political it is. And you have, we found out that Michael Caputo was manipulating um, the, the reports that come out of the CDC. These are weekly reports that the world, not only American doctors, but around the world, doctors and medical facilities, and they, re- they look at these reports coming out of the CDC to make decisions on things. And now it had to go through some political lackey with no medical experience to make sure that it fit the narrative of Donald Trump, which has been a bunch of bullshit concerning COVID. You know, every week we find out something more and more corrupt has been going on in this administration. And it's so overwhelming that a lot of times people just look at it and shrug it off. And that's what worries me. We can't just shrug this stuff off. It is all important. It's all dangerous. And that's just more reason why we've got to vote Donald Trump out along with the Republican enablers. We get questions all the time about, well, how come Lincoln Project, we understand the the attacks on Trump, but why would you want to get rid of the Republicans in the Senate? Because the Republicans in the Senate have stood by and allowed Donald Trump to get away with this. The Senate was supposed to be a guardrail. Impeachment was put in place for the, so that the Senate could remove him, could remove a president if they were that derelict in their duty, if they were that much of a threat to the United States. And this Senate, those Republican senators knew it, and they didn't, they did not do their jobs. They abdicated their responsibilities and their oaths of office. So that's why. Because if it wasn't for the Republican Senate, we wouldn't, first of all, Donald Trump would be removed. We wouldn't have the Bill Barrs of the world. This guy, Bill Barr, who I still think is one of the most dangerous men in America, if not the most dangerous next to Trump, because he actually is smart and he knows how to manipulate the system. And he's in a really powerful position as the attorney general. And he is wreaking all kinds of havoc also, putting his thumb on the scale of justice. He's getting involved now in in the crackdown of protesters and accusing them. He, we found out that he was pushing to have protesters, um, the rioters, you know, well, the, the agitators, not the peaceful protesters, the violent agitators. But he was pushing for prosecutors to charge them with sedition. Sedition? Come on. You know, this is this guy is so dangerous and he is just contributing to this. He's contributing to the talk about mail-in voting being um, uh, susceptible to fraud. He's just going along with all of the shit that Donald Trump is putting out there and throwing against the wall to see what sticks. And he's backing them up. And that is ju- way worse than anything that Eric Holder or Loretta Lynch the, the infamous tarmac meeting between Bill Clinton and Loretta Lynch during the 2016 campaign, where they thought that that was a whole nefarious discussion about getting rid of the, the um, investigation into Hillary Clinton's emails. Maybe it was, maybe it wasn't, but that shit is nothing compared to the kind of stuff that Bill Barr is doing. Uh, it's way beyond any of those little political favors, way beyond that. 
I mean, for God's sakes, he compared the he compared the lockdowns during COVID earlier on in the response. He said that they were the worst civil liberties violations since slavery. Really? You're comparing states and localities trying to protect Americans from a deadly virus to slavery? This is unbelievable, these people. He knows better than that. It just goes to show you how they view these things. So it's there's just so many things going on that are alarming um, that we just have to make sure we continue to pay attention to. This idea of insurrection. Um, I heard Roger Stone, who should still be in prison, Roger Stone used that term during interviews with uh, Alex Jones and the wackadoodles over there at Infowars. Um, Michael Caputo, as I started to say, he uh, had a mental breakdown over the weekend and did a Facebook Live on his personal Facebook page. If you haven't seen it, Google it. It's crazy. He talks about how he's afraid of shadows looking at him, that his life is in danger and um, how the left is arming up and they're going to engage in insurrection if Donald Trump wins the election and Biden loses and that Biden won't accept the results. So um, as patriots, you need to start arming yourselves and getting more ammunition in preparation for this. Are you freaking kidding me? These people are calling for armed revolution, basically, vigilante justice. And Trump isn't going to talk this down. No, he's amping it up. He's activating these people. So you had Roger Stone, Michael Caputo, and Donald Trump on Fox News with that Judge Janine, all talking about, quote, insurrection and sedition and, you know, the need for retribution against violent protesters. <sighs> Listen, I'm not in favor of the violent protesters. They need to cut that shit out. They're not helping the situation. But um, it's not sedition and retribution. That's not what our law enforcement does. So but that's the mentality of Donald Trump and his people. It's very a very dangerous, toxic soup of um, vigilantism that they're trying to that they're trying to support here and activate people on. And it worries me. I saw a report from the sheriff's department of some county outside of Portland where they literally had to tweet out to tell people to stop setting up checkpoints to their neighborhoods. Vigilante militia groups were setting up freaking checkpoints to protect their neighborhoods from Antifa. What? Yeah, that really happened. So, um, you know, we just can't have this. And Donald Trump's campaign is becoming more and more desperate and they're, they're out of money which is hard to believe. They've raised $800 million and they've had to scale back their ad buying and their operations. This is not the time when you scale back if you have a healthy campaign. (laughs) This is when you're supposed to ramp stuff up. What the frig have they spent $800 million on? Well, the Lincoln Project has some ads about that. So just go go check out the Lincoln Project ads. But it's um it's laughable what a bunch of suckers, the people who have been giving their money to Trump for, like they've been supporting this whole grift. It's been nothing but that. People have been enriching themselves, the fundraisers and the, and the quote consultants and the Trump family members and girlfriends and whoever the hell else is hanger, the hangers on. They're spending all this money to raise money. And it's something called a burn rate. Burn rate is how much you spend money based off of how much money you raise. And their burn rate is through the roof. That's not a good thing. So 
You know, Donald Trump has bankrupted casinos, for God's sakes. So why is it any surprise that he would mismanage the finances of his campaign? Not a shock. Not a shock. Um, One other thing um, before I bring in Miles Taylor that I think is important to talk about, you know, I've been repeatedly saying that how Trump is getting worse, right? And his tweets and things and stuff he's saying at rallies, it's becoming more and more crazy because they're on the ropes a bit. They've actually decided to shift campaign strategy a bit from this whole law and order Antifa's going to get you stuff because it's not really working. Um, Joe Biden, like I said, is still either leading or they're close in places. So they're switching to the economy because, of course, it's the economy, stupid, right? It's always the economy. Kitchen table issues that impact average Americans directly. They have, whether they have a job, can they pay their mortgage, paying their kids college, putting food on the table, basic needs, um, and the economy is in shambles. Don't listen to what Donald Trump is saying. Oh, we the stock market is doing great. Yeah, that's wonderful. Most people don't have stocks, okay? The average American, most of them do not live off their stock dividends, okay? The average American is worrying about, you know, how they're going to pay their rent or how they're going to make their car payments or whether they still have a job. Okay, this economy is still in tatters over the the contraction of the economy over coronavirus because of how Trump mishandled it. If he had handled it right, we probably would be in much better position now and all those businesses would not have lost all those people. Maybe not this long. There just could have been so many other things that happened that wouldn't have exasperated the situation the way it is now because of Trump's mismanagement. So they have shifted strategy now to focus on economy because people still believe that Donald Trump would do better on the economy because of how well it was doing before Corona hit. But so they're running ads and touting achievements. Yeah, that were (laughs) pre-February. That doesn't mean shit now. That's wonderful. But how he handled crisis. He was inheriting a good economy. He just didn't do any harm. So now when he was faced with making decisions that actually impact the economy and people, he's failed miserably. We've got tens of millions of people still filing for unemployment. It's 30 million people still out of work. So when he's touting the, oh, we got 10 million new jobs, but no, that's after we lost 46 million of them. (laughs) So Don't be fooled by the okie doke, but that's what they're going to do. So wherever you live, especially if you live in a swing state, if you live in Florida, Arizona, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Michigan, you're going to start seeing Trump ads touting how wonderful the economy was uh, a year ago. Not now. They don't have that option. So um, pay attention to that. One other thing about Trump getting worse, and then I'm going to bring in Miles, um, more and more people, especially in the national security space, are alarmed by Trump's rhetoric, particularly going after the integrity of the election. And uh, former director of national intelligence, Dan Coats, he was the original DNI under Trump. Dan Coats is a good guy, actually, and um, very competent, but he was run out of DNI last year in the middle of the whole Ukraine scandal. And I have a friend of mine who was also working for the National Security Agency and worked close with the Intel folks and who told me that that Dan Coates basically had tears in his eyes as he was resigning, pushed out, um, because he was so alarmed about what would happen when he left and who would replace him and that it was an agonizing, 
agonizing time for him. And you're going to hear in my interview with Miles Taylor a little bit more about uh, some of the other people who have served in this administration and what their motivation has been and why they hadn't left sooner. You know, a lot of us ask like, well, what the hell were they doing there in the first place? Miles Taylor gives some good context and perspective on that. And Dan Coates is one of those people. You're like, he's a good guy. What was he doing there? Well, maybe because he was a good guy and he, he was trying to do the right thing. Well, he's written an op-ed in the New York Times where he's calling for a bipartisan commission to oversee the election. Donald Trump's rhetoric around voting in the election and trying to sow this type of, 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 um, discord and just distrust around our free and fair elections is really straight out of an authoritarian playbook. Um, my guest last episode, Professor Ruth Ben-Ghiat, we talked about that, you know, all the characteristics of authoritarians and Donald Trump checks every box. And um, Dan Coates' piece in the op-ed, uh, in the New York Times' op-ed, I encourage you guys to, to read it if you haven't. It's called, uh, What's at Stake in This Election? The American Democratic Experiment. And he's really sounding the alarm about um, how dangerous it is to undermine our elections, that it's the linchpin of our democracy. And he says that, he said, our democracy's enemies, foreign and domestic, want us to concede in advance that our voting systems are faulty or fraudulent, that sinister conspiracies have distorted the political will of the people, that our public discourse has been perverted by the news media and social networks riddled with prejudice, lies, and ill will, that judicial institutions, law enforcement, and even national security have been twisted, misused, and misdirected to create anxiety and conflict, not justice and social peace. If those are the results of this tumultuous election year, we are lost, no matter which candidate wins. No American, and certainly no American leader, should want such an outcome. Now, Dan Coates doesn't name Donald Trump throughout this piece, but it's clear who he's talking about. Very clear. And he warns, he says like, he says he, that we should have this, um, this mechanism as a bipartisan commission to make sure that the American people have confidence in their votes and in their election. And the fact that we're even at this point is a whole nother story, but we are. And he says the electoral legitimacy is the essential linchpin of our entire political culture. And he's right. So the warning is, um, is a, is a serious one. And I hope that someone listens. I don't know if, if, if we're even in an environment where we can accomplish something that bipartisan, but the point that he makes is that no American leader should be against that. And anyone who is, anyone who's against protecting the integrity of our elections should be voted out of office because that is one of the most un-American positions to ever take. He actually concludes in his, in his piece, he says, if we fail to take every conceivable effort to ensure the integrity of our elections, the winners will not be Donald Trump or Joe Biden, Republican or Democrats. The only winners will be Vladimir Putin, Xi Jinping, and Ali Khomeini. No one who supports a healthy democracy could want that. Amen, Dan Coates. I just hope our leaders are listening. With that, I'd like to bring in this week's guest, former Chief of Staff for the Department of Homeland Security, Miles Taylor. 
This week, I am really pleased to have our next guest come and talk to us because I've been following his brave decision to come forward and speak out against the Trump administration after his time there serving as the former chief of staff to the Secretary of Homeland Security uh, during Kirsten Nielsen's reign. It is Miles Taylor, and Miles has become a uh, almost a name of infamy at this point because he's been such a thorn in the side of the Trump administration because he worked inside with firsthand knowledge of some of the most absurd and alarming behaviors that the president of the United States engaged in during his time over at DHS. So Miles Taylor, welcome, welcome, welcome. He's also the co-founder of a new anti-Trump group called Repair, um, which he'll explain what that is and what they're doing in a little bit. But Miles, thank you so much for joining me on Honestly Speaking with Tara. Tara, thanks for having me. I'm uh, excited to have the conversation today. And boy, we have a lot to talk about, given what's been happening here in Trump's Washington. Oh, there's what do you mean? It's a boring news cycle. <laughs> there's there's nothing to talk about. I mean, the world isn't on if fire. Only, literally, we would be so lucky to have a boring election. <laughs> it would be the most wonderful thing if we had two stale candidates just trucking along, talking about policy issues. Uh, I could ask for nothing better. Right. I, I just, here we are instead. The good old days, uh, how I miss the arguments over percent tax cut percentages and whether privatization of Social Security is a worthy public policy initiative. Um, instead, I never wanted to be bored so badly in my life. I just want to be bored again. <laughs> you and me both. I, I say that all the time. You know, it's um, it really is not hyperbole to say that we are fighting for the future of our republic. And it's not alarmist. It's really not. I mean, people say every election is the most important one in their lifetime. And that's become just kind of political, normal speak. Not this time. It literally is a battle for not only the soul of the nation, as as Joe Biden says, but really for the health of our republic, because Donald Trump is an existential threat to our constitution to our democratic norms, institutions, and ideals. And you had firsthand experience watching him in, engage in behaviors that did pose a threat to our republic. Let's talk about that. Um, what made you decide yeah. to come forward? Because you spent two and a half years working in the Department of Homeland Security. You had a front row seat to some of the most controversial policies that came out of that department in the beginning of the Trump administration. What made you finally say, I've got to come forward, enough is enough? You know, ultimately, it was really, in a nutshell, witnessing the president's character firsthand and recognizing that he did not have the knowledge, skills, and abilities to do his job. I've managed a lot of people in my career. At the end of my time at DHS, I was managing a workforce of 250,000 people. Um, I know when someone's able to do their job or unable to do their job. And, and fundamentally, the president seemed unable to do it. Now, if he was you know, uh, a frontline worker at TSA, okay, we'd reassign him and it wouldn't have great consequence. But he is the commander in chief of the United States uh, military and the leader of the free world. And him not being able to do his job has extraordinary consequences to our national security. But for me, look, I came in wanting to hope for the best. I'm not 
you know, a secret democratic operative or a so-called deep stater. Um, of course I'm you a, are, Miles. You know, yes, you are. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's right. You're no, the ultimate was, deep stater. That's right. That's right. I'm, I'm the, the Trump turncoat that he's just been hoping for. And, and we can get to that in a minute, because in some ways, me coming out plays into the president's narrative of these you know, mm-hmm. evil people plotting against him. But, you know, look, I, I was born of 9-11. I mean, 9-11 is really why I got into public service. And I've spent most of my career uh, on the national security side, on counterterrorism, cybersecurity, intelligence, and nation state threats. That's what I've been doing for years and trying to keep the bad guys from hurting Americans. Came into this administration with John Kelly, um, you know, had never worked immigration issues. But once I became chief of staff, obviously, that's a big part of our department. And I'll tell you this. The president, I, I often call it his wall or nothing approach to governing because he was so obsessed with, with the border wall mm-hmm. that our huge department, DHS, does so, so many things to protect Americans against disaster. But 95% of the president's time, he just wanted to focus not only on border security, but 95% of that on the wall itself. And that meant that critical, serious, emerging threats to the country, including real-time intelligence that we were getting about bad guys trying to do bad things, would get ignored by the president because he was so obsessed with just one piece of what the department did. So ultimately, I decided, look, this is doing more harm than good. We're unable to keep him from impulsively pursuing bad ideas and sometimes illegal ideas, and uh, it's time to go. And I actually probably should should have left sooner. I mean, I tell folks I think I probably should have left a year sooner, but we Mm. found out who Donald Trump wanted to replace us with, and we were way more scared about those people holding those jobs uh, than us holding those jobs. So we held on a little bit longer. That's an interesting point, because a lot of people wonder, well, what the hell did you expect was going to happen? Didn't you see that Donald Trump during the campaign was completely unfit then? You know, people like me who were screaming from the rooftops that this guy was unfit and potentially dangerous, not even really anticipating how dangerous he's actually become. But, you know, some people are like, how long did it take for you to realize this guy is batshit crazy while you were there? You know, like, how do you how do you last that long? No, for sure. You know, I would say this. Look, we all saw Donald Trump clear-eyed in 2016. So most of the people that went in, I will say, weren't woolly-eyed about it. We had no illusion that this was you know, a man who was a paragon of virtue. No one felt that <laughs> way. But everyone who came in and everyone who appealed to other public servants to come in said, look, we got to do this because these jobs are too important to give to Trump campaign lackeys right. and the island of misfit toys that have been around him uh, for many, many years up in New York City. So when John Kelly recruited me, look, John Kelly's the least political guy I'd ever worked for. He'd just been a four-star Marine general when he came in. Uh, he didn't know Donald Trump from Adam and Eve. And so he said, look, we got to do this. We got to run this place and give him a cogent national security policy, because if we don't, it's going to be a real spooky crew here in the administration who does it. In every department and agency, most of the heads felt that way. And I would actually say this. You go back to the beginning of Donald Trump's first term, and I will still make the case that as much as people disliked him, he had a pretty killer cabinet. He came right. in yeah. with some very experienced, excellent people, very few of which were personally close to him or had ever even met him until the transition, but but almost all of whom were deeply qualified to run their departments and agencies. At now, least- it's no surprise that those are all the people who've been purged because Donald Trump senses experience, morality. Uh, he hunts it out and, and he excises it. Yes, at least in the national security space. I mean, I would argue that 
Wilbur Ross and Mnuchin and Ben Carson um, probably should not have had their jobs. But um, but the others, you know, you had General Mattis, you had Rex Tillerson, you had John Kelly. You did have some some pretty heavyweight qualified people. McMaster. McMaster, that's right. I mean, a real hell of a team. Yes. And and their lieutenants. They had extraordinary lieutenants. And that's not me trying to beef myself up, but there was a really solid team in there. Uh, And most of those folks have been kicked out and replaced with acting officials or campaign aides or Trump loyalists who will never tell him, no, Mr. President, this is wrong. You can't do it. Yeah. and And that was within two years. No one lasted really yeah. more than two years. And for General Mattis um, to finally up and quit. No, he was not fired, people, whatever Donald Trump tells you. Mattis quit in protest over Donald Trump's decision to abandon the Kurd, our Kurdish allies in favor of doing um, the bidding of, of the Turkish dictator Erdogan. Um, he, people like that, I think Mattis was probably one of the last holdouts in that crew. Was it true that there was a suicide pact with Mattis, Kelly, and Tillerson? Where they all well, said, listen, I'm we're in it together. To, uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm not going to dime out my old bosses, but I, what, what I will say is this. Um, there were plenty of conversations among senior folks throughout the administration and beyond the individuals that you just mentioned uh, about potentially the need to resign and potentially the need to resign in mass to call attention to what was happening. Now, some of those conversations subsided uh, in year one because there was a, a really strong sense after we witnessed the president's day-to-day instability. There was a sense that if you pulled out the most experienced people from government and they all quit, that really the plane would crash into the ground. Now, there are some people out there who at the time, if you remember in year one, said, let the plane crash. Right. We don't want adults in the room. Let us see who Donald Trump really is. Let him do what he wants. Um, and, uh, you know, and then we can hold him accountable. That's that's fine. If what you're talking about is, again, like a bad manager in a local recycling plant, he's doing a really bad job. Yeah, maybe let him prove he's doing a bad job uh, and then fire him when he breaks the rules. The difference is with the commander in chief when he does a really, really bad job or breaks the law, it's potentially millions of Americans whose lives, livelihoods, and way of life are on the line. So ultimately, a lot of these cabinet secretaries and senior advisors at the White House said, um, we think that will do more harm than good to jump out of the administration because all Donald Trump will do is just you know, criticize us and move on. And it won't have the impact and the consequences of him having no guardrails will be far more severe. So people tried to hang on as long as they could. Um, under the condition that they were still able to keep Donald Trump in line and put bad ideas back in the box. The moment each of those individuals realized I'm no longer able to put bad ideas back in the box was when it was time to go. And uh, and you're right. They, a number of them resigned on their own accord, including General Mattis. I was there in the West Wing the day that Donald Trump tweeted he was going to pull out of Syria. This is something for many months we've been explaining to the president was a severe Mm -hmm. national security concern. There were terrorist threats and operations that we were following uh, in real time in that part of the world that we were worried about. And we felt like it was critical to have U.S. forces there so that we could fight the bad guys overseas and so that we didn't have to fight them uh, on our city streets. The president was not swayed by that argument. He was hell-bent on pulling out U.S. troops uh, and didn't consider 
a disciplined process to review all those consequences. Instead, that morning, as I sat in John Kelly's office, we looked up at the TV and on CNN, on the lower banner, it said Donald Trump tweets uh, pulling out troops from Syria. That was the first time myself, the White House chief of staff, the national security advisor, John Bolton, who was seated a few feet away, and I believe General Mattis, who was across the river at the Pentagon. First time that we found out the president had made that decision was by tweet that we saw on television uh, and the White House erupted into chaos that is in unbelievable. the moments that followed. But that's how the president of the United States makes some of the most important decisions about the safety of our troops and the security of our country is by tweet and without consultation. Why was he so hell bent on doing this? Explain this to folks. I, I have, I know why, but I want to hear from you since you were there. <laughs> yeah, look, I mean, you know, in, in fairness, if I can say that, the president has a view that the United States is vastly overextended around the world. And he believes that we should be withdrawing uh, U.S. forces basically from wherever they are. He thinks it's costing too much money. Um, and you could argue that the United States in some periods has overextended them- itself. Uh, in the case of Syria, though, we were very clear with the president. This isn't just some place we've decided to arbor- arbitrarily place U.S. forces. This is a place where we are actually going after very bad people who want to do very bad things to Americans. And it's crucial. This is foundationally the reason why the armed forces exist is for this type of mission. And the president didn't want to hear it. What's worse, Tara, is that um, we had worries that still haven't been confirmed because none of us can be inside Donald Trump's head. Mm-hmm. But we had worries that one of the reasons he wanted to pull out U.S. forces from Syria is that Vladimir Putin uh, in Russia wanted us gone, and that the Turkish uh, head of state, uh, Erdogan, uh, head of government, rather, wanted us gone as well. So in other words, the president was listening to foreign despots, foreign autocrats. He was listening to the bad guys who wanted America gone, and he wanted to please uh, those adversary nation states. And uh, that's one of the things that we worried about, is that he would make decisions that would be more beneficial to Russia and Moscow than uh, the United States of America. That is just extraordinary to contemplate that 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 national security experts like yourself and others would actually have to sit around and discuss this as the motivation for a United States president's decision making. Did you guys ever ponder why? What is the obsession? Because a lot of people, I mean, we, you know, we speculate, those of us who know the history of Trump and his relationship with Russia and Russian money and propping him up in his businesses and, you know, do, do they have compromise on him? And, you know, why is he so, why is he so desperate for Putin's uh, approval and Erdogan and all of them? Do you think that were the conversations ever like there's something specific or is it a character flaw in Trump in that he just thinks that authoritarianism is awesome? Because he wants to be one. It's a great question. (laughs) And I think it's before I even answer it, it's stunning that we have to have this conversation. But it's a real one. And Mm -hmm. that is the president's senior most advisors behind the scenes had many conversations about why he seemed to be in Putin's pocket and why he seemed to be obsessed with dictators around the world. And there was very real worry that his obsession with these individuals was bad for U.S. security and was going to have real consequences to undermine the safety of Americans around the world. And, and we talked about that. That's extraordinary. Um, you know, my opinion is it's two reasons. One, 
they look like him and they benefit him. They look like him. What do I mean by that? Donald Trump looks in the mirror and he sees in himself the autocratic tendencies that are in those leaders that we just mentioned. And he wants to be like that. And this isn't just me recklessly speculating. Go back. Look at comments the president has made when he's with President Xi of China, when he's with Putin, when he's with Kim Jong-un of North Korea, uh, when he's with Erdogan. When he talks to these individuals, he applauds their system of government. He talks about how great it is that they don't have term limits, how great it is that they have unfettered authority, how terrific it is that they're not accountable to a free and open press. He's made these comments on his own. Now, Donald Trump will say, oh, I make them jokingly, but we've heard the same things from him behind the scenes. Right. He, he doesn't really, joke. really, really relishes. He doesn't joke. He really relishes that total authority those individuals have. This is the same Donald Trump who's told us, uh, you know, you can elect me to a third term. Why don't I be in office for 12 years? The same Donald Trump who told us he wanted to get rid of judges uh, when we were in the Oval Office one day. He literally said, let's just get rid of the judges. Can you send a bill to Congress to get rid of judges? I'm tired of them ruling against me. So he has autocratic tendencies. So that's item number one. He looks in the mirror. He sees in himself what these individuals have, and he wants it. Uh, item number two, so he looks like them, and he also benefits from them. Um, a lot of us behind the scenes speculated that the president wanted to develop warm relationships with these autocratic countries because for a long time in the business world, he recognized that he could cut deals with corrupt leaders. It's very tough to cut deals with leaders in democratic countries business deals is what I mean, mm -hmm. because there's checks and balances. They don't have the ability to say, yeah, we're going to cut through the regulations, wink and a nod, and here's a $50 billion loan to do whatever you want. But Donald Trump knows from his time in business that in places like Moscow and in places like Beijing, you can do a handshake agreement behind the scenes, break the law, and do what you want, including building hotels, new buildings, properties, resorts. So we openly speculated that the president wanted to develop those warm relationships because if there's anything we've learned that he loves in the world, it's money. I mean, the president loves being rich. He loves talking about being rich, and he wants to be richer than he currently is. And so we were very worried that he wanted to facilitate these relationships with America's adversaries because he knew when he was done with his time in office, they would like him and they would be able to open the doors that leaders in democratic countries wouldn't be able to. And you can go back to John Bolton's book that came out earlier this year, and Bolton speculated the same thing about the president's comments towards uh, the Chinese and especially uh, Erdogan in Turkey, that potentially he was keeping an eye towards potential future business opportunities. That is in and of itself damning and disqualifying from this presidency that he would use his office uh, for potential personal financial benefit in the long run. Miles, that is extraordinary. That is, I just don't know that the American people in large numbers understand that, 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 that this is what the president of the United States is doing. His primary priority is not to uphold the constitution, not to honor his oath of office. It's not to protect, defend, um, and, and you know, make sure the American people are secure. It is to in personally enrich himself and to, to norm bust our institutions so that the rules don't apply to him, just like his entire life. Anyone who's read Mary Trump's book would understand what his life was like growing up and what it's why he's the way he is now. That is 
just mind blowing. And I'm sure people who are listening to this were shaking their heads the same way I was listening to you explain that. And to be clear, you are saying that while you were in the employ of the taxpayers as a government employee in the Trump administration, you and others in the national security space had these conversations while you were current employees working under the Trump administration. These were real conversations in real time. Yeah. And I would say the operative words are me and others. Right. Um, A lot of others. These are folks that were at the, that are household names Mm -hmm. that had these concerns and aren't political hacks and aren't so-called deep staters. I mean, they're just good government servants who wanted to come in and protect Americans and saw what I saw at the same time and were terrified about the president. I would be willing to submit that the majority of the president's national security cabinet thinks he is unfit for office. Let that sink in. The majority of the people that have been confirmed by the United States Senate to come in and run the largest departments and agencies in our country to protect Americans believe privately that the president of the United States is unfit for his job. Now, you can quibble with that and say they should all resign and they should all speak out. In some cases, I don't want them to resign and speak out. I know who he would replace them with. He would replace them all with yes men if he could. He's replaced a lot of them with yes men. But we actually need some of those people to still feel that way, but keep their jobs and try to keep him in check, even if it means sometimes, uh, you know, bad things might happen. Well, worse things are going to happen if there's no one there with their hand uh, on the steering wheel. But that's the reality. Did the 25th Amendment come up in your presence? Uh, I I won't comment or speculate on that, (laughs) except to say this, except to say this. um, It was clear to folks that there was a lot of reckless talk and loose talk about, oh, you know, the 25th Amendment and, uh, you know, the president could be deemed unfit by his cabinet. Um, The issue is that any student of history knows that the 25th Amendment actually exists for a time when the president is truly incapacitated, right, by a stroke or an illness. He's he's unable to go sit down in the Oval Office and sign an executive order. Um, Donald Trump is truly unqualified for his job um, and, and wants to do bad things and has bad impulses, no vision. But um, I don't think that people around the president felt like that was a very wise course of action. Uh, in fact, I think there was a lot of worry that the more people even talked about the idea of the 25th Amendment, Um, the more unrest that could uh, generate in the country. Now, clearly we're in a period of civil unrest right now, but you can only imagine if a group of unelected uh, officials in government ousted the president, that would quickly be seized upon by the right as a coup and, you know, would plunge our country into total chaos. So no one wanted to do that. Uh, And and any talk about the 25th Amendment, if it ever happened, uh, died about as quickly as it came up. I'm glad that you addressed that because, you know, a lot of people who aren't as familiar with how these things work were were saying, you know, well, how come? What about the 25th Amendment? The guy is nuts. Like, get rid of him. And and it's like, well, it doesn't quite work that way as much as we would, (laughs) you know, have liked it to perhaps with him. (laughs) But you make a good point, um, I think, answering some people's questions about why um, that that course of action wasn't taken, and really why? Because I wondered this in the beginning too, and then I, the more people I talked to, kind of echoed what you said about yeah, but if we quit, who replaces us? And the thought of that became even more alarming as we saw who was replacing people, and um, 
we are where we are now. I mean, you end up with with someone like Michael Caputo, who is completely un- mentally unstable, uh, emotionally unstable, and batshit crazy out of his mind as the spokesperson for the for HHS, a major agency, and interfering politically with CDC reports and the COVID response and running interference to protect Donald Trump and his crazy conspiracy theories and botched response to COVID. Um, that's just one small example of someone inside an agency, never mind in the national security space, like a Richard Grinnell taking over the DNI or, you know, Matt Whitaker as the acting attorney general. Like these people have no business being anywhere near them or Jared Kushner, for God's sakes, who would never get a security clearance in real life involved in so many things uh at the at the highest levels in the white house it's just hard to contemplate but that's the the world we live in which is another reason why we need to vote them all out um i, I want to get back to some of your direct experiences i mean people for people who have not read your op-ed pieces or maybe have not seen you yet on cnn by the way i want to welcome you as a, a colleague of mine now in the cnn contributor space we're thrilled to have you. It's awesome. When I saw that, I'm like, that's great, great to be with you. Because um, your voice is so important. Uh, and you're, you are credible, despite the fact that the president of the United States called you a lowlife and a real stiff and claimed that he didn't know who you were, never met you. And you came out with receipts, which was glorious. You were like, oh, yeah, well, here's the pictures of me with him in the Oval Office <laughs> more than once with the president of the United States. So, so much for that. You know, um, it's too bad if I'd still been there, uh, like we would have told him many times. When I spoke out, um, if I'd been in the West Wing at the time, I would have said, Mr. President, don't come out against this guy. When you come out against this guy, you're going to elevate his message. Mm-hmm. And he's probably got stuff on you. And of course, Trump cannot resist the temptation. It's funny. Anytime there's someone who says something bad about him, Donald Trump develops short-term memory loss. Right. He says, I don't, know, I don't know if I've ever met the person. I've never even heard that name. Yeah. When someone comes out and says something good about the president, he gives them the warmest embrace and they are uh, his best friends. Um, so, you know, that's the reality of the president that uh, we have in office right now. Listen, if he can, he tried to distance himself from Michael Cohen, who was his right hand fixer <laughs> for over a decade, you know, so you're in good company as far as the Trump, the, the president trying to bullshit his way out of uh, his relationships with people who are close to him that he did know and were our <laughs> credible sources. Um, so it's, well, it's sorry, co- sorry, as I say, as I tell people, it's, it's never felt so good to be one of Donald Trump's exes. <laughs> and I really urge people who are considering, you know, come join the club, be one of his exes, uh, unless we really need you in your current job or position. But but there's good reason for that. And, and you just mentioned, you know, some of the, the crazy. I mean, we could go on for days about it. But, you know, this is a man who took the department that we were running, the Department of Homeland Security, and deeply politicized it. Again, I'm a relatively uh, lifelong Republican, but a relatively apolitical person that I've never worked on a political campaign. I've never worked on a presidential campaign. Um, I'm on the policy. Policy. Mm -hmm. So I want to make that department work and I want to make sure that we save American lives. Donald Trump wanted to use DHS for his own personal political benefit consistently, whether it was uh, trying to send uh, illegal immigrants into sanctuary cities so that they would create chaos and increase the crime rate so he could hurt Democrats that opposed him, whether it was withholding aid uh, to places like California where there was wildfires because he said, well, the people of California don't support me, so I don't want to give them the money to rebuild their homes, whether it was telling us down at the border that we should shoot 
migrants, we're talking about innocent women and children here who are trying to get in the United States, we should shoot them. You don't have to shoot to kill, but shoot them in the leg so that it slows them down and they know not to come across our border illegally. The Donald Trump, who ignored major cyber threats to the United States because he was far more interested in focusing on immigration, who ignored emerging threats to our country that we warned him about, the Donald Trump who refused to talk about the threat of Russian interference in our elections when we were telling him we thought it was one of the top three threats the United States of America faced. But because he perceived that the Russians were trying to help him, he wouldn't talk about it. And then this is the same Donald Trump who, when we told him that there was Chinese meddling in the United States and it might be designed to undermine him and hurt his policies, he said, well, I will condemn the Chinese. And that's what he did publicly. This is a Donald Trump who has run his administration and the levers of government in a way that is personally beneficial to him and puts his self-interest above the country's interest. I could go on for days with examples of how we saw that happen, but I just want to say this, and that is when you have a president who has a clear vision and has priorities, you are able to focus on your job. But because the president didn't have a clear vision and consistent priorities, and he was so unstable day to day, calling you in the middle of the night, calling you first thing in the morning, calling you in the middle of the day with insane ideas, it means you can't do your own job. So management of these departments and agencies that Americans depend on suffered considerably because cabinet secretaries were getting interrupted all day with insane requests from the president. I will give you an example. We were very focused one day on a threat stream that we were worried about. So intelligence information we've gotten from overseas. I can't talk about it, it's sensitive. Uh, and we were trying to figure out how are we going to respond? What are we gonna to do to protect Americans? How can we use DHS um, to keep this thing from happening? The president called and he had an urgent request for the secretary. He wanted to talk about how much it would cost to build a moat in front of the border wall to literally build a moat like you would see in a castle oh my God. Uh, in front of the border wall to make it harder for migrants to get across. And then what's more, he said to us, can you do a cost estimate of what it would take to put dangerous animals like alligators and snakes in that moat to really keep the illegal, illegal immigrants from going in? He said, the beauty of a moat is it will double the height of the wall because they'll have to go down. Then they'll have to go way up. I need you guys to tell me how much that's going to cost. And to look into that hangs up the phone. What do you do in that moment? First of all, you've got to respond to the president with something. But rather than focus on the issue that we needed to, we had to be sidetracked to you know, get back to the president as soon as possible to give him a cost estimate on the moat. Now, I want to reassure listeners, no, we did not devote days and attention and time and federal taxpayer dollars to this very, very stupid request. From Thank the God for that. The United States. What we did was we made sure we got a credible back of the envelope estimate on how absurd it would be to build a moat. And I, I recall it was somewhere around 50 to 60 billion dollars, our team told us, to build some kind of thing that would look like a moat in front of the wall. And if Donald Trump is anything, he's very cost sensitive and he's cheap. So fortunately, when we went back to him and said, sir, 50 to 60 billion dollars, which is more than DHS's entire budget for the year, that's how much it would cost to do the moat. He said, OK, that's too expensive. Let's move on. So you figured um, out that that was the way to back him off some of these batshit crazy ideas was just to tell him how expensive it would be. Yes, definitely. Wow. Uh, he's, he's, he's cost conscious. And that was a great tactic to get the president to actually focus on serious things uh, and not crazy 
uh, you know, whims of fancy that he comes up with on a daily basis. Didn't he also ask uh, for a cost estimate on or on painting the wall black, like the color of the wall? Didn't he call you obsessing over that and like putting spikes he, on the top of the of the fence? He, he absolutely did. And, <laughs> and, and more than just one or two times. I mean, countless times the president would talk to us about he even at one point sketched out exactly what he wanted parts of the wall to look like. Now, keep but in he mind. He showed this to you. He physically wall. he physically sketched yes. it and showed you guys. He drew he drew what he wanted <laughs> the wall to look like. And and keep in mind, the border wall is actually it's important for border patrol officers to have barrier in certain places right. because there are real threats to them. There's 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 gang members and criminals and drug dealers. There's bad people coming across and they've got to be able to control the flows towards ports of entry where people can be screened and and let in. That's not just to, you know, keep people out. Who are illegal. So there's a way that the wall needs to be built for operational necessity, mm-hmm. right? There's operational reasons that our frontline border patrol officers who are really trying to defend this country need to build it. Instead, Trump wanted to build it in a way that he told us was a quote work of art. He said, I want this to be a beautiful work of art. Um, and then a, a very grotesque work of art because he specifically said he wanted to paint it black so it would get so hot that if a migrant touched it, it would burn their flesh. And he wanted the tops to be so sharp. He showed us how sharp he wanted those spikes to be with his pencil on paper, so sharp that their hands and arms would get pierced by the spikes. And it would be so gruesome that it would dissuade anyone else from coming across. This is how this is the sick. president of the United States thinks. He spends his day thinking of sick ways to injure innocent men and women who are desperate for a better life. That is not who we are, right? Ronald Reagan said we were the shining city upon it. Right. We are a beacon of light and freedom and hope for people who want a better life. Donald Trump wants the border to look like a torture chamber to scare away those individuals. This is not who America, uh, who, what uh, you know, Americans envisioned our country being like, and it's not who we are, but it is who Donald Trump is. That is such an encapsulation of how twisted and deranged Donald Trump is as a human being. And the fact that he has been given the most powerful position in the world to be able to live out some of these deranged fantasies that he has is mind boggling to me that we're even here. But that's for another discussion of of how he got here and the types of people who continue to enable him. Um, That is a bigger problem that we're going to have to face when I hope he loses in November because those people aren't going away. But the idea that the that this guy is so obsessed with this level of cruelty, right? The cruelty is the point and that he would he would openly express this to you people and and ask you to try to figure out ways to live out these sick fantasies. It is just hard to envision that. I mean, it, it, it's consistent though. I mean, we talk about the, you know, the Woodward book who, that just came out and the tapes that we heard where he actually talks about his affinity for Kim Jong-un, who is another sick bastard that gets off on violent, um, you know, violent actions against his perceived enemies. And Woodward reported that Trump was, was obsessed enamored almost with the way that Kim Jong-un killed his uncle. And I think that was the one where he fed his uncle to, to, to crocodiles or something, right? It was some, some type of really sick, twisted, just grotesque 
horrible way of killing him. And Trump was enamored with this. So that tells me this is a consistent thought process for this guy. And the fact that he has access to our military and that he's commander in chief is it, it is beyond uh, alarming. I, I just can't even it's it's hard to put hard to put it into words. Um, it, it is. It is. And, and, it, and it's tough because people hear some of this and they say, that's got to be hyperbole. That can't be the way it right, really is. Right. That that is why I'm putting my family and my career and my life and my future in the Republican Party on the line is because we have to have more people actually saying no. Trust me, it is that way. I mean, people have always asked, is it as bad as it looks? And my answer has consistently been, it is not as bad as it looks. It is so much worse than you can imagine. That's scary. This administration. It is indeed scary. Look, I'm a taxpayer. I'm an American citizen. I love this country. Um, Witnessing this was enough for me to say, uh, not only do I have to get out, but we have to do everything humanly possible to prevent this man from being reelected on November 3rd. That is um, that is consistent also with what we see with his handling and mishandling of COVID, of the wildfires, mm-hmm. of things that impact people's lives directly. Like it's these are literally life or death situations and and require decision making and uh, uh, resolute and measured decision making on the part of the commander in chief, on the part of the, the chief executive of the country. And he has just abdicated that in every way because he said it this week during one of his covid pressers. He starts blaming blue states for the for the uh, death total it with COVID. Well, if, if it weren't for the blue states, if we take them out, we we wouldn't have hardly any you know deaths. It would be less than anybody could imagine. He literally divides this country into red states, blue states, who supports him, who doesn't. And that's all that matters. His obsession with these these strange things. And, and I had to say, Miles, whenever your book comes out, because there's got to be one there, <laughs> it is going to be a barn burner <laughs> because of the stories that you'll be able to tell. Just what you have told in the last half an hour is um, insane. And that is just the tip of the iceberg. I can only imagine. And you've only been, you were only there for two and a half years. Imagine we're going into year four here. This is uh, without people around him to tell him no, really, because you at least were were there when there were competent people to say, uh, hell no, not no, but hell no. Sorry. He doesn't really have many of those people anymore. So uh, four more years of this unbridled um, lunacy from Donald Trump is is unimaginable to me and really should be unimaginable to the American people, um, which leads me to your latest adventure, which is you have started a, a group called Repair, um, which is a, which encompasses former uh, Trump administration officials, uh, Republicans and conservatives who are as alarmed as as I am. I'm happy to say I am part of your of this group as well. Um, and Explain exactly, you know, who some of these folks are and what you plan to do and what repair actually is as we're heading into this election. Yeah, so we've we've officially today launched the Republican Political Alliance for Integrity and Reform. It's a mouthful. And as you say, its acronym is repair. And our our goal is threefold. Uh, We want to restore leadership in Washington. Okay, that means getting Donald Trump out of office and focusing on bringing in leaders with character. 
two, we want to refocus the priorities of the Republican Party and clean up the damage done by Donald Trump, make it a more inclusive uh, party and one that addresses the needs and concerns of Americans rather than the needs and concerns of the single individual that uh, is the titular head of the party. And then three, uh, we want to repair the country. We really genuinely think that the fabric of our republic has been frayed by this president and potentially irreparably frayed if he gets a second term. Uh, but we want to do that work and start that national conversation about how to fix it. So today we announced our organization is launching. We've got about 30 senior advisors that represent top officials from the Reagan administration, the George H.W. Bush administration, the W. Bush administration, uh, and the Trump administration. And I'm excited to say that today we also announced that two other senior ex-Trump officials uh, joined our ranks. So you can go take a look at repair45.org and take a look at our team. But we'll really be starting to work with a lot of those conservative groups, but also a wider set of stakeholders across the political spectrum to talk about how we repair the damage of this administration and move on as a country. We're excited about it. Um, we think that there is hope. Of course, the 10-meter target here is to make sure that on November 3rd, we prevent a second Donald Trump term. But regardless of whether we have six more months of Donald Trump or four years and six months, uh, that national dialogue needs to start now. We need to come back together. Um, and, and, and I want to go back to a point you made earlier uh, about the, the things that could have happened in this administration. Look, I'm under no illusion that uh, the group of people, the so-called axis of adults, as we were in the early part of the administration. No illusions that you know we're somehow heroes or brave. We're none of those things. We're civil servants who just wanted to do the best for our country. But people need to imagine what the first administration of Donald Trump would have looked like if he'd done even the handful of things that I mentioned earlier, that if it weren't for people who said no, then okay, we would have been uh, shooting migrants at the border, Oof. building moats with snakes and alligators, uh, you know, sending criminals uh, into sanctuary cities to cause chaos and disruption and so discord, you know, inviting the Russians to intervene in our democracy, on and on and on the list. It would be even worse and more grotesque than what we have already seen. But in a second Trump term, he will feel completely emboldened and there won't be those checks and balances. So those things that were prevented won't be preventable in a second Donald Trump term. And that's really, really why uh, folks need to have those honest conversations with their friends. You know, your mega MAGA uncle at the <laughs> you know, dinner table, uh, show some empathy. Realize that he feels like he's been left behind by other parts of the political spectrum. you got to show that empathy because that's the only way to get through to people and have this conversation. Um, but we need to really reach out to those folks and explain to them the reality of what's happening behind the scenes. And you will see here in the coming days some of the people who have joined our organization, Repair, uh, who have been close to the president, will be out there actively providing testimonials about what it was like to work with this man and why they believe uh, that he's unfit for the job. Well, I'm encouraged by that. I'm encouraged that more people are coming forward, um, that they're doing it now better late than never. You know, we're only less than two months away from from this this consequential election. And everyone who has knowledge of what a danger Donald Trump post, poses to this country needs to speak out. Um, they're not just you're not a bunch of disgruntled ex-employees, as which is what he'll call you all, <laughs> which he has called, you know, oh, they're just disgruntled employee ex-employees of mine. And yeah, OK, it's it's everybody else. It's never him. Um, 
So I'm encouraged by that and encouraged to be a part of it. And I'm uh, thank you for including me. And it's just part of of what we feel is important as Americans and how much how much we love this country and want to make sure that our constitutional republic stays intact because it literally is under threat. And without our constitutional foundation and republic, nothing else matters. No policy, no judge, no tax cut, no um, anything matters if that system falls apart. So before I let you go, um, I just have two more quick issues that I, I want to make sure we touch on because of your expertise and, and experience at DHS that I know people are worried about. We talked, we're talking about the election and how important it is. We also know that Donald Trump is actively and his acolytes are actively trying to sow discord and undermine our elect, our free and fair elections. He has continued to tweet out things that are just untrue. He's engaging in demagoguery of this issue um, and, and, and trying to, I mean, our free and fair elections is one of the most fundamental rights and, and what makes our country run smoothly and differentiates us from a lot of other countries. And he is actively trying to undermine this. What role does DHS play? Because, you know, our elections are mainly state and local. They're, the federal government really doesn't have any direct influence on how elections are run. But what can, what does DHS do to protect our elections? And what can the average American do to make sure that their vote is in fact counted? Yeah, well, because people are worried about this, question, Miles. This. I'm worried about it. They are, and they they are, and they should be. And you know, I spent two and a half years overseeing our efforts to prevent foreign interference in America's democracy. And DHS is charged with the mission of protecting election infrastructure, right? Protecting the processes and the systems nationwide uh, that uh, that Americans rely on to go uh, vote and make sure their votes are counted and, and counted correctly. And I'll tell you this, after spending two and a half years every day reading the most sensitive intelligence about what our adversaries wanted to do to sow discord in the democratic process, I firmly believe that the president himself represents a bigger threat to the integrity of our election than those foreign adversaries who are devoting time and resources and attention to deliberately undermining our democratic process. And that's because Donald Trump himself has questioned all of those elements that we depend on uh, to make sure Americans have confidence in the vote. He's trying to reduce the confidence Americans have that their votes will be counted and counted correctly when a president should be doing the opposite. And he's doing that for a very clear personal and selfish reason, is Donald Trump wants to be able to say, and this is not me speculating, he's essentially said this, he wants to be able to say that if he loses, it's because the vote was rigged. In fact, the president said that verbatim. He said, if I lose this election, it's because it was a rigged mm -hmm. vote. That is damning and it is damaging. And it makes people uncertain in this experiment in democracy that we are all supposed to be united around. Um, that's an enormous concern. So look, DHS has done exceptional work since 2016 to prepare to defend our elections. I would say, uh, Donald Trump aside, our elections are more secure than they've ever been because of the time and attention and effort uh, put into keeping uh, foreign nation states from coming in and, uh, and meddling with that process. Great work has been done by the domestic cybersecurity agency called CISA that we stood up, by the FBI, by the intelligence community. It's exceptional. But the one thing that those departments and agencies can't prepare for 
is there is the possibility that the uh, the biggest threat to the elections comes from within rather than from the outside. And these agencies have spent years preparing this vast array of tools to push back against bad guys, punish them, protect the elections, get the truth out to the American people, fight back against disinformation, to do all of those things. But they aren't prepared, and they never could be prepared to do those things against their boss, the president of the United States. How are they supposed to counter-message their boss? How are they supposed to punish the president for disinformation? They're not designed to do that. Um, and that's an enormous threat and a huge problem. And ultimately, it comes down to this. It comes down to elected politicians, especially in the president's party, holding him accountable. Republicans, Mitch McConnell and all the way down, need to today, not two weeks from now, today, they need to say that it's unacceptable for the president to question the integrity of the 2020 vote. It's unacceptable for him to be talking the way he is about mail-in ballots. It's unacceptable for him to be talking about rigged elections and that if the president loses the vote, he must depart office as is required under the Constitution of the United States. They need to draw a red line in the sand. And if the president crosses over that red line, the people within his own party need to hold him accountable. That's what needs to happen. As for voters, to your second question, look, I think it's incumbent upon voters to make sure that they think twice before they share information, especially in the lead up to election day. There will be scary things that get said by the president, by his allies, and by foreign adversary nation states about polling locations, rigged elections, you know, overcounting of ballots, double voting. To, to address your second question about what voters can do, the really important thing is this. They need to think twice before sharing information. The biggest threat to this election is disinformation, whether it's the president lying about the integrity of the vote or foreign nation states lying about the integrity of our vote uh, and our process and the candidates in the race. Disinformation is the biggest concern. So people need to think twice about what they're posting and sharing, make sure that they've got the facts, take a breath before you tweet. Okay, right. so That's, that's really Facebook, that's people. Twitter. That's right. Yeah. That's right. It's across social media platforms. Don't just repost the most incendiary thing uh, that you see, because there really is a threat of this disinformation causing problems and, and chaos in our election. Um, the second thing that voters can do that's really important is actually go vote and vote as early as you can. If you have the option to do early voting or mail-in ballots, that's safe. It's effective. The process can be trusted. That's a good idea uh, to do it. And on election day, I'll say this, just have patience. Um, I think it's going to be a shit show. <laughs> I think we all feel like it's going to be a shit show. Yeah. Um, but that it will be okay. And the lines are going to look six times as long as they normally do because people are going to be social distancing. So don't be intimidated when you go to your polling place and it looks like the longest line you've ever seen short of Magic Mountain at Disney World. <laughs> it will be okay. It will go quickly, expeditiously. Your vote will get in. It will be counted. The integrity of our electoral process and system is very, very strong. It's very robust. It's really, really tough to meddle with uh, as long as we don't fall victim to lies and disinformation about the process itself. So get out there, vote, have confidence in the process, get your friends and family out there to vote. Uh, and just let's all try to keep a level head. And then once this is over, I think we can all hope that politics will become uh, boring to us once again. I hope so, Miles, because I'm exhausted. 
<laughs> and I, I, you know, you I, and I both are. Oh both. my gosh. And I, I know the American people are also, and I just hope that there are enough Americans out there who have had enough of the chaos chronicles, um, with this, with this administration and with the just abject failure, incompetence, lunacy, batshit crazy, um, uh, just dereliction of duty by Donald Trump as president of the United States. I just hope and pray that there are more of us than there are of them. Miles Taylor, thank you so much for what you're doing. Thank you for speaking out and having the courage to do it. So many others have not and continue to stay anonymous and hiding and won't be honest about what's going on. And um, thankfully, you are not among those ranks. You're among the, the coalition of the decent, as we say over at the Lincoln Project. And I'm grateful for your voice and look forward to more of what you have to offer, more of what Repair is going to do and um, the work that we have ahead of us. Miles Taylor, thank you so much for joining me on Honestly Speaking with Tara. Tara, thanks for having me, and uh, I look forward to working with you. Amen, my friend. Again, another big thank you to Miles Taylor for speaking out, being courageous enough to do something about what he saw and being honest with the American people about their choice in November um, and doing something about how having to fix this, try to help repair this freaking mess that the Trump administration has created in this country. So thank you so much to Miles Taylor and thank you to everyone for supporting the Honestly Speaking podcast. I will see you all next week. Be sure to follow me on social media at Tara Setmayer on Twitter at honestly underscore Tara on Twitter, um, Instagram at the Tara Setmayer. And of course, follow all the stuff we're doing on the Lincoln Project TV station. Check us out on the breakdown and um, let me know what you think. I want to hear from you. See you next week.